Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Across the country, teachers are expressing deep concern about education during the pandemic. According to a new NPR survey, more than 80% of teachers worry that online instruction will worsen learning gaps and cause students to fall behind. And just 11% of teachers say their school districts got a final plan for the school year. On top of that, by a two-to-one margin, teachers say they don't want to return to in-person instruction, a prospect not immediately on the horizon in California unless county health officials decide to grant waivers to eligible elementary schools. In this segment, we're going to talk about how teachers are approaching the reopening of schools. And joining us is Anya Kemenitz, who is education correspondent for NPR, and welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. Also glad to have Marissa Glidden join us, uh, president of the United Teachers of Richmond and a sixth grade teacher at West Contra Costa County Unified School District. Welcome to the program. Good to have you. Great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. And Marissa Glidden, let me begin with you. Uh, Forced last spring to adopt to distance learning, uh, one can presume and hope that teachers are now much better prepared. I'm wondering, from your perspective, how much better prepared are they and particularly prepared in addressing kids needs uh, through zoom calls or through excuse me zoom calls or involvement with family and friends i really think there's no comparison from where we were in the spring you know when i was teaching in the spring we had a teacher with a presumed positive case so we showed up to school on a thursday morning uh, and we had to shut down immediately didn't get a chance to say goodbye to our students uh, and had to overnight figure out how to turn our classroom online after you know years of preparing to be a teacher in the classroom now we've had the summer to prepare um, and we've been able to share resources with each other attend workshops and really start to think deeply about what do we actually need in order to make sure we're meeting our students needs now well, it, I'm, I'm sorry oh, i was going to say one of the things you need most presumably is uh, what we were talking about in the last segment which is PPE and safety. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think beyond PPE and safety, what we really need is to make sure that the virus is su suppressed, that we no longer have community spread. Um, and that's what's going to keep us really safe before we, we even begin to talk about PPE and returning to the classroom. Well, over there in, in West Contra Costa County, I know there have been teachers meetings, shifting to online lesson plans and activities and so forth. And uh, I guess the real question boils down to how prepared are you for this uh, coming school year? So we have incredible educators in West Contra Costa County, and I'm just really amazed by my colleagues and how innovative they've been. Uh, we've been meeting regularly to share ideas, to talk about what we need from the district in order to be successful. Um, and so I think we are prepared. We're providing um, opportunities for social and emotional learning, We're providing opportunities for teachers to get more professional development, which is going to help us. Um, of course, it's not going to be the same as in-person instruction, and teachers are going to kind of need the grace and compassion uh, to get to, to learn to make mistakes, to try new things, and to get better at this as it's completely new to all of us. Again, Marissa Glidden is president of the United Teachers of Richmond and a sixth grade teacher at West Contra Costa County Unified School District. And Anya Kamenetz is education correspondent for NPR. And Anya, interested in finding out, uh, it's pretty shocking to know that two out of three of uh, teachers that you spoke to in the survey said they are not exactly eager to go teach online. Uh, that's even more true, I think, for uh, uh, the older demographic of teachers. But how does that translate? I mean, particularly in terms of uh, 
what we're looking for in terms of, well, specifically what's going to go on in the classroom. So two out of three teachers in our poll with Ipsos told us that they do want to start the year online. Um, and that was lower, however, as you mentioned, for older teachers. Um, but when they say that they prefer to start the year remotely, it doesn't mean that they're excited about it. I think there is really serious concerns that are being raised about learning gaps and also about getting to know a new class of students. Over four out of five teachers told us that they're not sure that they're going to be able to you know, establish the classroom culture that they're used to, um, you know, gain students' trust when it's a brand new class in the fall. So that's something that I think teachers are thinking really seriously about. We did hear, as Marissa mentioned, that teachers are more optimistic about learning distance, distance learning, the, the learning part of it this fall. 70% told us that their school's plan is headed in the right direction as far as distance learning. But one in four don't want to come back, right? So in terms of coming back in person, um, the uh, the poll was that two out of three prefer to start the year remotely. We had, uh, in terms of if they're asked to come back to the classroom in person, fully 16% of teachers said they would leave the profession if they had to come back to the classroom. And what are you hearing from them in your survey about safety measures and concerns? Um, you know, it, it, teachers are reading the news just like everybody else, but I think what's added on top of that is uh, sometimes a lack of trust. We have to understand, of course, that school districts are in a huge budget crunch right now. Um, they have gotten a very small proportion of coronavirus relief funds. Congress has failed to appropriate more money in the most, you know, as yet in the most recent package, which is still in formation. And so four out of five teachers told us, almost four out of five, that they just don't think that the uh, PPE that they need and the cleaning supplies are going to be there. I mean, you know, these are old school buildings in a lot of places out of repair. Um, you know, teachers are used to having to bring their own supplies to school. So they're just not sure that they're going to have what they need to stay safe. Let's talk about money for a moment with you, Anya, because uh, there's a lot of fighting over allocations. There's also concern over long-term financial viability and uh, uh, in the school systems in general. The NEA is estimating that schools need as much as 245 billion the white house has put forth the figure of 105 billion in the current negotiations but that's going to mean uh well it's going to mean it's it's tied to physical reopening isn't it that's right they want to attach strings to it it's not sure it's not certain whether that's going to make it through the house and the senate but they certainly do want to incentivize slash force schools to open up in person um and if not the threat on the table is that they would direct those funds somehow to alternatives to public school. Of course, we know that Education Secretary Betsy DeVos has been a longtime proponent of pretty much everything besides public schools. That's charter schools, vouchers for private school, and even for homeschooling. And I think that the accelerating trend that we are kind of seeing here is um, if parents with the means opt out of the public schools right now in search of something that's a little more viable as an alternative, um, what happens to our school enrollment and indeed to public schools as an institution? Again, we're talking about education in the time of COVID-19 and what teachers are most concerned about. And uh, we invite you to join us if you're a teacher or a parent, you're concerned about the start of the school year, you can give us a call right now. And I invite you to do that. The toll-free number for your calls is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email. Any questions you may have right now to forum at kqed.org. If I can go back to you, Marissa Glidden, just for a moment here, uh, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about the whole question of waivers. Uh, right now, of course, uh, most of the schools are going to be online, but waivers are considered. And I know, in fact, the unions over in Alameda and Contra Costa County 
have actually signed a letter to the public health officials saying uh, no waivers for individual schools unless all the schools in the county can open safely. That's correct. Yeah, we've signed on to a letter, 29 other unions uh, in Contra Costa and Alameda County saying exactly that. No school should open until it's safe for every single school to open. And the question there is, one, it's a health concern, but also it's an equity concern. Um, I'm really concerned that we're going to have a more segregated school system by opening some school districts, some, some schools in areas where there's less virus spread. And that's going to ignore the deep and important needs of our communities that are really impacted by COVID-19. And let's talk about that for a moment with you, Anya Kamenets. Uh, there's gonna be terrible inequities because the wealthier schools obviously can afford to a greater extent that we were talking about money before, they can afford uh, the revenue that's going to be required, particularly when it comes to safety measures and getting the schools ready and all of that sort of thing. We're talking about a much greater economic inequity, particularly for communities of color and communities that are underserved, aren't we? Well, there's a lot of inequity, whether you're talking about remote learning or you're talking about this return to school in a pandemic. Um, the, Both, it's been yeah. Yeah, so we, it's an estimated that 12 to 15 million children don't have the devices or the connectivity that they need that's across the country. Um, and there have not been large scale efforts to remedy those inequities. Then there's the inequity that comes from having to learn at home if you don't have an adult um, potentially who speaks English or who's able and willing to help you during the day. So, you know, there's just huge inequities on both sides. And what we haven't seen is a lot of creative thinking about how can we use the resources that we have on a system wide level, whether that's district or state to make sure that the kids in need get what they need. Well, let me uh, go to a caller and uh, that's Tara is our first caller. Tara, welcome to the program. Join us. Hi, thank you. Yeah, go ahead, Tara, please. Oh, I just wanted to say I'm a teacher in San Francisco Unified and I have a friend who um, teaches in another state and she actually did in-person summer school this summer. Um, and she was really looking forward to seeing her kids who teaches third grade in person because the distance learning was so challenging and stressful for her. Um, and then she's doing in-person learning that that was even more stressful and difficult. Um, she couldn't, she was talking about how, you know, having the kids third graders wearing masks for four hours straight was really difficult. Um, and that she had to constantly be reminding people of that and that transition times were really long. Um, she talked about how she couldn't read books with her students because she couldn't get close enough to look over their shoulder and see what they're reading and guide them in their reading. Um, so now she's more of a proponent of saying, you know, in person with all the restrictions and procedures that we have to put in place is actually worse than doing it digitally. And so she's more of a proponent of saying, let's really try to do this digital thing right or this distance thing right Um then try to go back to schools and do this impossible job of teaching um, during a pandemic um, in person. Yeah, Tara, I appreciate your call and those thoughts. And let me go back to you on this, Anya, because I think uh, in an article you wrote, I saw where uh, less than 5% uh, of positive tests are gonna be required uh, as far as the AFT is concerned before something is, before a school is concerned safe, but so many, uh, testing proves that there's asymptomatic problems to have to uh, encounter as well. Yes, that's very true. I mean, we have a story out this morning where we talked to a lot of public health experts about the positivity rates and um, where testing should come into school reopening plans. The fact is that most uh, districts that we reviewed around the country are not even mentioning testing in their reopening plans, where 
you know, the ideal would be to test at least once a week, if not more often, um, to catch those asymptomatic cases. And so, you know, there may be some innovations coming down the horizon as far as rapid tests, pooled testing. These are strategies that we've seen in other countries. Um, but without that kind of surveillance or population-wide testing, uh, the idea of having outbreaks is, is becomes pretty inevitable. And my question for you, Marissa Glidden, uh, from a listener named Samir, who says, I'm curious to hear teachers' thoughts about returning to school in person, if it can be done in a purely outdoor setting with social distancing and appropriate PPE. Do you think teachers would be more willing to come back to school if this was proposed as opposed to inside classrooms? Definitely. I think that we've got to think of creative solutions as we begin to reopen. But again, we've got to focus on really, I think the biggest issue, we get distracted with PPE and solutions for coming back to school. But I think it distracts from the biggest issue of we've got to get this virus under control, especially in our most highly impacted areas. Um, and it's having a severe impact on our black and brown students. So it's really crucial that right away we do contact tracing and testing uh, in these highly impacted areas. You know, in Contra Costa County, the county that I teach in, um, there are three times the number of cases in San Pablo than the county average. And so by using county averages to come back to school, we know that students in San Pablo, even if we're able to find some creative solutions, are still gonna be entering day one with more of an opportunity for uh, the virus spread to run through the school. Is that why you'd like to use zip codes? <laughs> That is exactly why I'd like to use zip codes, yes. I think by using zip code data, we're keeping it equitable and we're putting pressure on our county health officials, our local health officials to pay attention to these highly impacted areas and put our time and money and resources into making sure it's safe for all kids everywhere in our county. And Anya Kamenetz, here's Trish, who's a teacher who writes, as a career public school teacher, I'm happy to see the inequities in education being brought to light. Let's not make the mistake of blaming remote learning for those inequities. However, people seem to think that there is something inherently impossible about distance learning. That kind of thinking is misguided and will only prevent educators from getting the time, training, and resources needed to make it work. That comment from Trish, a teacher notwithstanding, you had pointed out before that there are terrible inequities and that to some extent, because of lack of, uh, lack of computers and all the rest of the concerns uh, that you mentioned, uh, they're being exacerbated with the pandemic. You know, I've, I've made a study of education technology for over a decade, and I can tell you that what we know so far is that education uh, online is a force multiplier for inequity. Some students who are very good at learning, self-directed, self-motivated learners, um, some who have school anxiety and prefer to be uh, on their own can do very, very well and progress at a very fast clip. But uh, there are many more learners that tend to fall behind when they have only online and they need a really robust system of supports. It's not impossible to design better online learning. And I am happy to see in our survey the optimism that's coming from teachers as they realize how to design highly interactive classes. But the fact is, especially for students with special needs and very much so for students who are younger than, let's say, fourth or fifth grade, it's just hard. It's hard to do it right. And there are so many affordances at the in-person classroom that we just don't want to give up or throw our hands up at, um, you know, when looking at uh, what our options are. And, you know, I appreciate safety is a really, really important consideration. But, you know, and all of these things obviously are being weighed by teachers and, and students and parents as we think about coming back. The American Pediatric Association has said that online learning does not measure up to in-class learning and face-to-face -face learning. And that just seems to me rather logical, uh, even from professionals or from those who uh, have 
talked about it here in this program, callers and listeners and so forth. But let me bring another caller in. Jolita joins us. Jolita, good morning. Good morning. I'm in San Rafael. I have a student in high school. And another proposal for utilizing the services um, and assets that we have available to us was a flip scenario. I believe the New York Times wrote about it. And that was that the teachers would be at home remotely, but you would set up a system that would allow students to go to campus so they have access to computers, et cetera. You stagger the students and you uh, pipe in the teacher. And then to staff the school, you wouldn't have to staff it with teachers. You can staff it with specialists that can clean the classrooms after the students leave. Um, and I think that at least for my son, uh, being in the classroom situation helps with the discipline. Also, I think that this could be a solution for people who are working at home or non-English speaking parents. Marissa Glidden, can I get a response uh, to you from what we've heard from our caller, Jolita? Sure. I mean, I think first, there's just no comparison to in-person class. School is meant to be in a school building. That's where you can build those relationships, build those social experiences, and it's crucial. So again, I think it's- And excuse me, get lunches in some cases too, of course. Yes, and get lunches. Yes. I mean, it's, it is the central part of our community. It really is. Um, and so we need to go back to school and teachers really go, want to go back to school but it's got to be on our local and county officials to be working all out to make this possible. In terms of kind of the hubs that the caller was talking about, our district has proposed something similar. Um, I think there could be a space for that. However, there's also concern about some of our highest need students coming back first and kind of being used as guinea pigs to see how the virus spreads. So um, yes, I think as we start to return, those are great solutions and they make it easier for teachers to be able to focus just online and someone to be supporting the students. But we really have to wait until our community spread is completely gone in every part of our community. And since I mentioned the importance of lunches, I'm going to read a comment from a listener named Sue who writes in San Mateo County, anyone who gets free lunch can get 14 months of free internet by going to internetessentials.com. For those who don't have housing, that can connect to the internet. Hotspots are available through the school district. Ravenswood and East Palo Alto and Eastern Menlo Park will give a free Chromebook to any student enrolled in the district. Another caller joining us, and that's Janet. Janet, welcome. You're on the air. Good morning. Thank you. Um, so my daughter is a principal at a school where the vast majority of her students are underserved communities. And one of the things that hasn't been addressed in this forum is the issue of parents who are essential workers who rely on the schools for their childcare, who are not able to stay home with their students who are gonna be doing distance learning. It's a big issue. And uh, can I ask you to address it on your comments? Yes, um, you know, I think that uh, the idea of having districts collaborate and and letting making childcare available um, is a really important one. And I did cover actually the fact that essential worker childcare has been open all across the country throughout the pandemic. Um, with the YMCA and other community providers. And it's been quite safe actually with um, protocols, proper protocols being uh, followed. There've been very few reports of outbreaks. So, you know, the idea of getting creative around solutions with this, being able to maintain very small pod sizes seems to be crucial as well as masks, PPE, hand washing. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that I would, you know, go along with the idea that the public schools are the only way to provide that childcare with 
after all, schools are only about 30 hours a week in session. Um, so, you know, but how do we as a community provide that need, I think is a really, really important question. Another important question that certainly came up in your survey and that many people are grappling with is the fact that, well, your survey said only 11% of those who were queried said that the school district had plans that were clear. Uh, I mean, this is a, an ongoing difficulty here in California. Governor Newsom said that district leaders and labor unions should decide collaboratively if uh, teachers should be required to conduct distance learning from their classrooms. But clearly, whatever the protocols are, they're not clear in people's minds. That's true throughout the country, isn't it, Anya? It absolutely is. And I would add that four out of five of our teachers uh, fully expected or worried that the plans would change even after the school year starts. We all understand in this pandemic that uncertainties become a way of life, but you know, children need stability. That's part of their developmental needs. And the anxiety, the constantly changing um, focus and shifts in plans is really becoming its own problem, as well as a lot of miscommunications I'm finding in uh, communities around the country between parents, teachers, school administrators, public health officials, and other stakeholders as they, we, everyone tries to wrestle this thing to the ground and parents are just left wondering, you know, what is my plan and do I need to have a plan for the next one week, two weeks, 10 weeks? Where are we going with this? Anya Kamenetz is education correspondent for NPR and Stella is our next caller. Stella, good morning. Yeah. Hi. Um, I have a concern. I'm a parent of a, of a um, elementary schooler and if we go to a hybrid model where half of the class is in attendance and cohorts and we're not doubling the number of teachers, then it seems like logic would show that we have to have half the number of instructional minutes, which really seems like a poor solution to our problem. That's of concern, I think, uh, in many areas. Uh, Marissa, you want to address that, Marissa Glidden? Yeah, definitely. Um, that's a huge concern to teachers as well. Uh, teaching online is such a challenging, different way of teaching. You know, when I first started teaching online in the spring, I decided to try to do it just like I would do in a classroom where I was in front of the, of the camera live all day doing my lessons. And it was, a, it was really a total failure that first week. I had to rethink all of it. So doing both, um, preparing for online lessons, which is what teachers would be doing during this hybrid model, and preparing for in-class lessons not only gives students less meeting time, but it makes it a lot harder for teachers to prepare really uh, strong lessons to meet the needs of all of their students. Marissa, could you say something about uh, a local decision? Um, I, I don't know, I'm sure you're probably familiar with it, but there's gonna be live streaming from empty classrooms at San Jose Unified, eight, uh, grades eight to 12. Uh, the, um, the teachers will be on campus, the students will be at home. What do you think about that? I'm really concerned about that model. I don't think it meets what we actually want to do, which is we want to educate our students and we've got to be creative and innovative in how we do that. And so just live streaming from your classroom all day is not going to allow teachers kind of the flexibility and creativity to do what they need for their students. We've got to think innovatively about what materials and manipulatives do students need at home. Um, how can we find creative ways for kids to interact on, online? And that's very difficult if you're just live streaming. I also am very confused why teachers would be forced back into their classrooms. You know, we heard out of uh, Arizona, a student, uh, an educator who passed away working, uh, just doing distance learning with other teachers in the classroom. And so it seems unnecessarily risky without much of a benefit to the student. Well, the benefit supposedly is stable Wi-Fi and uh, tech support and access to classroom materials, or at least for the teacher's perspective. 
Yeah, totally. And we, and we need those things. Um, but I think our district, and just like Anya said, we've got to work collaboratively and creatively with our community to provide our students with good Wi-Fi um, and good computers. They deserve that. Um, and our educators deserve to have that at home safely as well. And we'll bring another caller on, and that's Nicole, who joins us from Campbell this morning. Nicole, welcome. Hi, thank you so much, Michael, and thank you to the guests for all your wonderful ideas. Um, in many ways, I'll be echoing some of the things that some other folks have said. I'm a teacher, and I know, you know I'll have between 150 and 170 kids. No matter how much I prepare, I am not going to be able to make the connections. So I would like to see, and I would like what the guest thinks about this, is that there's a collaboration between universities and um, schools to streamline um, let's say, uh, emergency credentials to get teaching assistance. So let's say I had two or three people that were working with me. So we could break the kids up into smaller pods. This would even be with distance learning, right? And then if we get back to the classroom, that would be great. But getting, let's say, credential students in or undergrads in so we can start to create the environment where kids are building relationships with people. Because no matter how good I am and no matter how much I care, I am not going to be able to do that. And Nicole, online. thank you for that suggestion. Can I get you to respond on your comments? Yeah, I think it's a really fascinating one and, and a great example of what can be done with a little bit of creative thinking. I mean, uh, you know, I, I've covered, like I said, a lot of successful online learning programs, and they are possible to be done when you make individuals responsible for the success of small groups of students and for building that relationship, as you mentioned. Um, I think it's interesting that, in, you know, in this time of emergency and pandemic, a lot of um, frankly, things that have been seen as weaknesses of the public school system for a long time are really kind of coming to a breaking point. Um, I want to know where is a creative thinking and the funding going to come from to try to bring in, let's say, uh, people who are part of national service or people who might otherwise be unemployed uh, to, to create that those warm bodies or the people that are needed to get kids what they need. Well, we've given so much attention through the years to the education gap, to the chasm that exists uh between the have and the have not, if you will. And uh, Anya, I'm curious to know your thoughts about this, particularly in light of the fact that we're gonna see all these pods popping up, uh, particularly in areas where they can afford that kind of education for their children, which again, just widens the gap, doesn't it? So I did a story at the very beginning when schools closed about education in emergencies. You know, we're in kind of a, a once in a generation disruption, but in places like New Orleans after Katrina or even Rwanda after the genocide, they've had these kinds of interruptions in schooling. And it takes years to recover the learning that's lost um, when students are out of school for even if just a few months. And, you know, we could be looking at some say a lost generation, um, particularly with our teenagers, the ones who are at risk of stopping or dropping out of school for good. Um, so without a really concerted effort and reinvestment everywhere from early childhood education, social and emotional, mental health, the funding, the, the, the food and the, you know, the basic supplies that families need, income support, um, you know, there's, there's some dire forecasts as far as the health of, of, frankly, the majority of our young people going forward. Yeah, well, we, we can hope that we can do something about those dire forecasts and really do something that's uh, expeditious and constructive in the best sense. Uh, let me read a couple of emails. Aaron writes, I'm a teacher at a public middle school in San Mateo County and parent of a seventh grader in San Francisco. Certainly, I'm a little nervous about how my teaching will go this year, and I'm concerned about my son getting the most from his year. Right now, I feel all teachers and parents need to focus on doing their best, getting students technology and other support is crucial, but lots of things aren't going to be as good this year. Be okay with uncertainty, welcome in some frustration, learn from mistakes, be patient with yourself and others. And we'll leave it there. 
let me thank the guests. Uh, good to have you with us. Uh, Anya Kamenetz, thank you for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Anya Kamenetz, again, is education correspondent for NPR. And thank you, Marissa Glidden. Good to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Marissa Glidden is president of United Teachers of Richmond and a sixth grade teacher at West Contra Costa County Unified School District. Thank you, our listeners. We wouldn't be here without you. We're here with you Monday through Friday, 9 to 11. And for all of us here at KQED Public Radio, stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.